On September 11, 1942, Navy Corpsman Weller Lipes had to make an impossible decision. While he was on a submarine, another sailor had come down with acute appendicitis and was near death. And at the time, the submarine was cruising through enemy territory. And so there was no possible way to get this guy to port to get into the surgery he needed to save his life. The man needed surgery, and there was no surgeon on this submarine. But it did have Lipes, this Navy corpsman. You see, what's interesting about Lipes is that several years prior to his service on a, sub, on a submarine, he spent time at naval hospitals in Philadelphia and in uh, Kennecal before entering this service. During his time at these hospitals, he assisted Navy doctors during various operations, including several appendic, how do you say it, Max? Appendectomies. I cannot get that word to save my life. He had um, helped, and he was involved in several of these kinds of surgeries. So Lipes, he had spent time with these surgeons. He had learned, he had observed, he had listened to, he had spoken to these surgeons. And the experience of association would prepare Lipes for this moment, for this day. Lipes performed that surgery on that sailor. And 13 days later, that sailor was back at work again because he did a good job. It was a great accomplishment and even greater than the appendectomies done by surgeons. Not because it's a greater surgery but because an unskilled shipmate performed the surgery. I think this story helps us understand the curious promise that Jesus poses to his disciples shortly before he left the earth when he said in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Thus the apostles, the church, and we today who follow Christ can do greater works than Jesus, not because they are greater works, but because of who we are, sinful, depraved, frail human instruments who have been empowered, purposed, and secured by the triune God of the universe. So what we will seek to answer today is this what is promised to those who follow Jesus? So this morning we're going to do something uh, uh, a little uh, crazy. We're going to look at a lot of text. Okay, we're going to observe uh, between Luke nine and Luke ten uh, three primary sections: the sending of the twelve disciples, the sending of the seventy-two in chapter ten, and then the return report of the seventy-two. We are going to touch on various stories in between these two chapters as they're going to highlight for us what's occurring in the text thematically. So essentially what we're going to do this morning is skip a figurative rock over an ocean uh, that is, has more depth than we could imagine. But what I want us to capture in doing this is that disciples of Jesus and us, we must be reminded of what Christ has empowered, purposed, and secured for us to accomplish in life for the sake of his name. So I think we miss that. We forget that. We get amnesia from that. 
And we have to understand this and act or obey with a sense of urgency. As we minister to one another, we evangelize the lost, and we simply grow in our faith this way. So let's look first at how Christ empowers his disciples to accomplish his mission. Look with me at Luke 9, 1 through 6. It says, Summoning the twelve, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Isn't that a peculiar thing to tell somebody? I'm a sweater, right? So I'm probably going to have an extra shirt in that bag. Jesus says, don't take it. Verse 4 says, whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. The first thing that Luke explicitly points out in chapter 9, in verse 1, is that Jesus has empowered the disciples to do ministry. Ministry way outside their capacity, right? Like, think of the things he says he gave them power over. He said he gave them power and authority over diseases and demons. Those are some, some big hitters, right? Diseases and demons. And I can't help but wonder, like, what the disciples must have thought when Jesus said this to them. I'm giving you power and authority over these things. Like, did they doubt at all? Did they look at themselves and realize, like, I'm, I'm weak. Like, I struggle with these sins. Or, Jesus, you know, you don't know what I've done. I can't do this for you. Or maybe, I haven't spent enough time with you, Jesus, to be equipped to do what you're calling me to. I think those are natural questions we raise when God calls us to do something. And he always calls us to do something like outside of our weight class, right? Every time. We begin to look at ourselves. We begin to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on us. And what happens is roadblocks begin to be raised in between us and the mission that God's called us to. This is, however, not how Luke portrays the disciples. It says, after Jesus instructed them how to deal with the rejection of the gospel, which is to shake off the dust off your feet and move on, only stay where you're welcomed, verse 6 says, they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. They went out, it seems like confident, right? The disciples went out confident and empowered to do the very thing that Christ called them to. And I can't help but wonder what breeds this kind of confidence. I think the answer lies in the power of association. Power of association essentially is the idea that our habits, our ways of thinking, the ways we do things are affected by those who influence us. Uh, your mentors, if you will, in life. And what influenced the disciples from Luke chapter 5 to Luke chapter 9 was this, that Jesus was with them. 
if you look in between those four chapters and even on to 10, you, what you're going to see is a repeated phrase quite often that when Jesus was with them or when the disciples were with Jesus, this is a common picture of their relationship. This was the training uh, manual, if you will, for Christ, that he would spend time with them and they would learn. You know, a guy named Robert Coleman wrote this book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. I love titles like that. They're crazy, right? He's, he's basically trying to map out and understand what Christ's plan was for reaching the world with the good news of the kingdom of God. And he says this, that the essence of Jesus' training program was letting the disciples follow him. It was spending time investing in people and so when the disciples went out healing and proclaiming they did it with confidence why confidence why because they had witnessed christ cast out demons raised the dead from raised raised people from the dead back to life in the city of nain they had seen jesus uh conquer legions of spiritual enemies heal the sick and they watched him go town to town proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then Jesus empowered them with this authority. And so their response was to go out in confidence. Go out and do the very thing God called them to. Christian, you have been empowered by Christ to engage the spiritually broken and weary world. And what will make you more confident in this reality is knowing that Christ is with you. In our call to worship this morning, we read the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We set it together. Well, in verse 20, we get a great promise. Behold, I am with you until the very end of the age, Jesus says. This should stir in us more confidence that we are not alone and Christ is with us. What should also breed more confidence in Christ is whether or not we spend time with him. You will grow more in your faith of Christ when you spend more time with him. So maybe take inventory this morning. Ask yourself, what, time of, what kind of time do I spend with Jesus? And do I feel confident to do and walk out what Christ has called me to? He has empowered me to. It, it's okay if you have doubts, though. They come back up. They resurface. They do for the disciples. And we see that truth in the text when the disciples return from doing these great things. Look ahead at verses 10 through 13 of Luke chapter 9. What's the title of that section? Feeding of the what? 5,000, right? Big miracles about to happen. Like your Sunday school felt board is about to get lit up, right? For those of you who remember that kind of uh, Christianity. Verses 10 through 13, though, says this. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all they had done. And so Jesus took them and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds found out, they followed him and he welcomed them. I just want to take a moment and pause here and just look at Christ's response. So the disciples come back. They want to talk to him about all that they had just gone through and done in, the, in, this, in his name, right? And then all these crowds here where Jesus is, and they show up. 
how does Jesus respond to all these people intruding on this private time? What does it say? It says he welcomed them. Jesus was hospitable with the crowds. He welcomed them. And he spoke to them about what matters, about the kingdom of God. And it says that he healed those who needed healing. It says, late in the day, the 12 approached and said to him, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. So we got all these people showed up listening to Jesus preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, right? He's healing people. He's doing all this miraculous stuff. And the disciples realize, oh, man, there ain't no way we could feed them. Like, they forget who they're standing next to, right? There's no way I can do this. So they come to him. They say, Jesus, send them away. In verse 13, so striking, Jesus says this. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. What a reminder of what the disciples have been empowered to do. Even after they have done and witnessed great things on their own. Even so, they responded to this situation with doubt. There's no way we can feed all these people. There ain't not, not enough food, lodging, nothing around town. As do we so oftenly witness the great things of God quickly get spiritual amnesia, do we not? We watch Christ redeem someone we thought, no way. And then we think back about maybe our mothers and say, there's no way Christ will redeem that person. My mama, you know, or my dad or family member. Or that situation where God healed you, restored you from a, a spirit of despair. There's no way he can deal with my anxiety, though. This, this struggle that I have, this addiction that I have. There's no way I can remain faithful in the midst of it. We often forget what God does. But the difference maker for the disciples in this story is that they were with Christ. And they observed him once again create enough food to feed thousands. They observed his power again. What awe must have struck them? And for Peter, it was the last straw. Like, he finally got it. This is who I'm with. Look ahead at verse 18 through 20. It says, while he was praying in private, Jesus and his disciples were with him. Jesus asked the disciples a question. This great exchange takes place. He asked the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, man, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, even others. You know, some say a prophet has come back. That's who you are. An ancient prophet. And then Jesus asked this. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, God bless his heart, right? He's like, I know this answer. Y'all call on me. He said, you are God's Messiah. You are the Messiah. Peter's confidence had come from being taught the glorious things of God. Even as a child. Last week, Pastor Stephen talked out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. He taught us like the Shema. 
this famous thing that Israelites would recite to one another as babies and to death. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Teach these things diligently to your children. Like Peter grew up hearing this. Love him with all your heart, soul, might. Do it. Love others. Got it. Teach these things diligently to your children. My parents have done that for me. And this is where his confidence would would start. And then it would grow from being in the intimate presence of Jesus. And then grow further from being empowered by Christ himself to do supernatural things that he cannot do on his own. And then witnessing again here in the feeding of the 5,000. And then next, next uh, couple of verses, seeing the Lord transfigured <laughs> into his glory presence. Like Peter's seeing this and his confidence is growing in Jesus, who is my Savior. And he realizes there can only be one response, one confession for someone who believes and follows Jesus. And that is that this one is the Messiah, my Savior, my God, my King. It is the threshold of belief and faith that the follower of Christ realizes their purpose and remains confident that they have been empowered by Jesus to exercise their purpose in the world. So the, what is the promise of those who follow Christ? Well, it is that you have been empowered by Christ, but it's also that you've been given an eternal purpose. Look with me at chapter 10 now. We're going to skip ahead and read verses 1 through 12. It says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he told them, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the, his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this household. And if a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. And when you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And when you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go into his streets and say, we're wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. So after these additional followers of Christ who have come out of the woodworks, right? We've had the feeding of the 5,000. We've had Jesus casting out more demons. We've had all of these incredible, miraculous events occur between Luke chapter 9, 1 through 6, and then here, Luke chapter 10, 1 through 12. And more followers have come out of the woodwork. And then Jesus sends people who have heard him, who have witnessed him, teach, who have spent time with him, 
and Jesus sent them out to engage in a work that would prepare his way coming shortly after. The text says Jesus was about to go to these places, so he sent workers ahead, these advanced parties, right? He sent workers ahead to the harvest to exercise their purpose, which he would give. And just like these 72, you and I have the same purpose, to work in the harvest, to pray for more workers. We are to go and proclaim the kingdom of God has come. And I believe we do this in two ways. So I want you to think with me for a second, right? If your life was a funnel, okay? We have the wide mouth of the funnel. It gets a little thinner in the middle, and then it's pretty tight at the bottom, right? So this is kind of Christ's way of dealing with people, of shaping people we see in the Gospels. At the top of the funnel, the largest area, we see him engage crowds, masses of people. He calls disciples to do the very same thing. So the first way we go and work in the harvest is by engaging groups of people, many people. So at the top of the funnel, you might think to yourself, man, what are the ways I'm engaging groups of people with truth? You know, it's easy for me to say, yeah, at church on Sunday morning, I'm engaging a group of people, right? It's harder for me to say that, hey, I also go out and work with veterans. That's my, that's my real people. That, not that you're not my real people. But those are the people I'm engaging in this way, on this wider scale, because there's this commonality here between me and them. And so I have a friend who he has an ESL thing that he does. He's, in, he's, in, he's engaging large groups of people by teaching them English. And then from that large scale, right, we have this secondary funnel, right, funnel point, which is investing in few. It's inviting investing in individuals and ministering them with, to them with biblical truth. And so you might say, okay, Maybe the way I'm engaging groups is as a school teacher, right? And maybe I'm a part of a um, after-school program that works with kids. Well, from there, maybe I'm inviting and investing in other teachers to engage in this work as well. I'm ministering to them. Well, then I'm challenging them to go out to the top and engage the groups with the gospel, and invest into others. And this is the model. It's circular, right? At this point. Comes through the funnel and out and goes back in the funnel again. But what you need to know is investing in individuals and engaging crowds or masses of people with the good news of Jesus is incredibly hard. It's incredibly difficult. There's a cost. And I'm just going to be blunt with you. It may feel like you're a lamb sent amongst wolves doing this kind of work. You know, uh, it takes a measure of self-denial and utter obedience to the one who we follow, who we say we follow, to do this kind of work. So that's why in Luke 9, if you look back, verses 23 through 27, Jesus calls us to take up a cross he says that if we follow him, we have to take up our cross and do so daily. So engaging others with the gospel may look like 
like I said, being a lamb amongst wolves. And you very well could lose relationships, your job, your comfort, and whatever you think is your security. I mean, good grief. A couple weeks ago, I got uh, asked to counsel an individual who's from a different country, but he works with the military. He's a chaplain for their military. And I'm, I'm called in to counsel this guy because... He's been reprimanded at work for being faithful, sharing his faith with someone he's supposed to be a chaplain to. He's gotten reprimanded for it, for being faithful, doing his job, what he thought was his job. And that's the direction we're headed, y'all. We're not there yet, essentially, in our country, but in this one, they're definitely there. And so he's in counseling. He feels ashamed. Like, I've been shamed my, by my country for being faithful to my God. I'm embar- he was embarrassed. Now he's got fear and anxiety over how to handle different conversations before, that are coming up ahead in the future. Like, there's a cost to following Jesus. But despite the potential pain we may encounter Nonetheless, Jesus says to deny ourselves and to walk in obedience. And it's in this obedience that you'll be exercising your purpose that has been given to you by Christ himself as you have been empowered by Jesus to do this very thing. So look at your life tactically. How are you engaging groups of people with the good news of Jesus? Think through that. Write notes. Draw a funnel and look at your life. Then who have you called individually to invest in on a smaller scale with biblical truth? That may look like asking a few people to go to lunch and do a Bible study. It's not crazy. It may look like um, asking a couple of coworkers to get breakfast in the morning or going to the park with a couple of other folks and asking them, what's God doing in your life? Here's what he's doing in my life and listening and encouraging and investing time into these other people, showing them who Christ is, and then challenging one another to engage others with the truth. The mission that we are called to is one that engages crowds, invests, and invites the few, and challenges others to do the same. And you will be amazed at what God does with your obedience, church. You will, you, you cannot even imagine the scope of, of what these little moments of obedience can produce. I think about my family. I come from wicked people. Wicked people. My great, great granddaddy were a six shooter and spent most of his time in prison as a drunk and a womanizer spending all his money at the gambling tables. An extremely violent man. My great-granddaddy was a drunk and also extremely violent, horrible person. If you were to stack them up, what kind of people do, does Neil come from? That's who I come from. And my granddad, my papa, because I'm from the south, he was headed the same direction, y'all. Bagging groceries at a Piggly Wiggly Met my grandma, married her, 17 and 19. None of them are believers. Don't come from believing families. 
one person I don't even know the name of was obedient. Shared their faith with my granddad. He came to know Jesus and love Jesus. He led his wife to the Lord. He led all his wife's family to the Lord. He led his dad and mom to the Lord. All his children follow and love Jesus. All his grandchildren, that's my generation, love and are following Christ. And we pray that that legacy would continue with our children. One person was obedient. And a legacy of a family was changed. Generations yet to be born were impacted by one person's faithfulness. Obedience brings joy that is unimaginable. And that is the purpose that God has called you to. And you may feel like a lamb amongst wolves getting taken down, suffering your whole life. God, take this thing. And he calls you to be faithful with that thing. Not that he'll just remove it magically, but to be faithful in the midst of it. That's what he calls you to. And he will do amazing things that weren't even on your in your imagination. And for those who follow after Jesus, though, you need to know you're not only promised to be empowered, promised with a purpose, but you've also been promised with assurance that is eternal. We'll close up now and look at verses 17 through 20 of chapter 10. It says this, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So think about their report for a second. They come back. They've been proclaiming the kingdom has come. They've been healing everywhere. They've been going. And their report to Jesus was one of, it's a J word, joy. Everybody say joy. That's a natural response from seeing crazy God things, right? Is joy. It says, Jesus responded to them with some some awesome statements. He says, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Like, if you want to know an eyewitness account of what happened to Satan, here's Jesus. Here's his eyewitness account. I watched him cast out of heaven and fall like lightning. He says, look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, do not rejoice in that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names have been written in heaven. So the report of those who've been empowered by Christ to exercise the purpose of working in the harvest is one of joy. Church, obedience brings joy, but what should secure in us more joy than imagined is the joy of our salvation. The joy that comes from knowing and walking with the all-powerful, all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. The threshold, the secure place of our joy should rest there. And everything else is cake. But here is the is the entree, right? I'm hungry. I'm thinking about food. <laughs> and then he says, what's behind that kind of joy you can have? Let me tell you. Let me tell you about my power. I saw Satan fall from heaven when he was cast out. 
He says, I've given you authority to trample snakes and scorpions. Here's the authority you have to do that, that no evil thing may have power over you. And you may say, well, Jesus, I don't know nothing about scorpions or snakes. This anxiety, though, this disability, this broken marriage, this anger that's fueling my heart right now, this prolonged depression I'm in, failed parenting, addiction, my awful job that I hate, this place that I loathe, man, that has some power over me. And I'm wrestling with it. And I feel like there's no victory in sight. And I'd say to you, it does have power over you. And it's crushing you. In your own strength, those things will consume you. In your own strength, sin will always produce death. But in the strength of Christ, you have every spiritual resource under heaven to remain faithful amongst those things. And when you feel victory over one, it almost feels like a new thing springs up, right? And so what do we do? We keep our eyes fixated on Jesus, who calls you to obedience and faith. And your prayer might have been, God, would you take this thing away from me? And then you're upset with him when he doesn't do so. And I'd remind you of Paul, who had a thorn in his flesh, the text says. And he asked God three times to take it away. And the Lord's response was this, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. What Christ is calling you to is obedience and faithfulness. Not just to remove something from you, but for you to be a testimony of faithfulness to the one who's faithful to you in the season of whatever that is. Christian, when you keep your eyes fixated on Jesus and not yourself, You will be in awe, and you will rejoice when you taste victory and faithfulness. But what Jesus says about your joy is that it should be rooted in the fact that your name is written in heaven. For those who follow Christ, you have been empowered, given a purpose, and promised assurance by the only one who has the authority to raise your dead self to life again. So don't lose the joy of your salvation. Dwell on it and meditate on those memories. And spend your time with Christ fixated on him and not yourself. And Ephesians 3.20 will be a promise that you can steep in. That he is able to do above and beyond what you could have ever asked or imagined. Let's pray.